재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 And we're back. We're talking about youth gambling in Korea. In this segment, we're going to discuss uh, the actual, I suppose, psychological aspects of gambling and addiction, how, how gambling addiction could be different from other types of addictions and possible measures that could reduce the risks of youth and their propensity to have a gambling addiction. Give us your thoughts. Text us at pound 1013 for 51 or send us a cacao talk message by adding... TBS EFM as a plus friend. We have uh, an expert from the UK set to join us uh, very shortly, but first here in the studio once again, Professor Hwang Jong-uk from Hanguk University of Foreign Studies. Now, again, you know, it's easy to say, oh, Korea has a, a, a big problem and Koreans tend to be this certain way. But I suppose there are, you have to legitimize, like, even just from an anecdotal view, just that one legal casino for that is open to Korean citizens in the country, the Gangwonland Casino. Uh, I think through the years, uh, as we've been seeing this casino operate, and yes, it's a bit, been a bit of a, an economic boon to that very poor region of the country, but uh, we've seen constant, like, Endless stories of these uh, very heartbreaking instances of people who've gambled away their fortunes, people who just drive there in the middle of the night after just waking up because they woke up in cold sweats. Just, there is a very serious problem that I think people can acknowledge, um, and you don't want that to become a bigger social problem. And if you agree that teenagers or the earlier you start gambling, you have a higher risk of uh, having an addiction to to gambling. What would you say? And, and maybe this is more of a sociological question. But why do you think that uh, teenagers are growing in numbers, and why they are becoming addicted to gambling in this country? Uh, is it unique, or is it something that every country has? Well, uh, Henry, so let me play armchair amateur sure, psychologist sure. here. We'll get the real I mean, one shortly. Sure, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if I just uh, have to st- take a stab in the dark, it seems you no. Know, at least superficially, Korean teenagers sort of lack you know you know sufficient outlet for you know other healthier entertainment or sports or hobbies you know they're so so and constant this you know, highly competitive school system that you know i think a little you know freer uh, structure might allow them to you know pursue other hobbies such mm. as sports hobby, yeah. you know other things but now what they're doing is just going back and forth between school and hagwon and home and mm. just just their probably only outlet is their uh, handphones and you know that's probably when they're you know accessing these sites through you know more mobile sites, either when they're commuting or pretending that they're actually studying. So, you know, I, I, I think we do need to take a little, take a step back and say, you know, what other alternatives can you give to these teenagers? Right. So I, I suppose maybe in the old days, you could have had kids go out and play pickup basketball or try to uh, exercise or engage in other things. Maybe that's not feasible in terms of this lifestyle of ferrying back and forth between hagwons and schools, uh, technology helping facilitate that. And you have that technology, but I guess it's too much to uh, hope that kids would be reading white papers or, or, or theses from uh, PhD dissertations and stuff like that. This is something that's more of an outlet. Like Right. I mean, you know, what, what you describe is sort of ideal for the Internet, but the reality is that, you know, the kids are just looking at what they like to do, and what they like to do is something that kind of, you know... Uh, 
uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, excites them at that right. sort of some basal level. And, you know, we, as a society, we need to get, give them more uh, options outside of, you know, yeah. things that are available in mobile I mean, we, we can say it's a, a correlation, maybe not go as far as, say, causality with this, but it is indisputable that among OECD countries, Korea scores off the charts in terms of academic performances, but uh, among OECD countries, also one of the most miserable group of, of, of people in terms of demographics, right? Absolutely. I think those statistics also support that view as well, yep. Okay, we'll uh, get, as we said, the real psychologist uh, viewpoint on this as well. Uh, very pleased to have joining us on the line from Nottingham Trent University, Professor Mark Griffiths. Hello. Hi there, Henry. <clears throat> Professor Griffiths, thank you for joining us once again. I suppose some basic questions for you in terms of gambling and ad addiction and what we've been talking about here uh, in Korea, the growing numbers of teenagers uh, starting to gamble and this idea that the earlier you start, uh, the more prone you are to becoming addicted to gambling. Generally, when does that occur? Uh, what, what age does gambling become a problem for people? Uh, well, it's different in different countries, of course. I mean, there have been adolescent gambling studies now done all over different continents in different countries. But most problem gamblers will tell you that they started some point in adolescence. Uh, here in the UK, we have a really bizarre situation that some of our children can legally gamble on slot machines that are in seaside arcades or family leisure centres. And just as you've, you've just noted in my research, we found that children who started playing gambling earlier were more likely to develop a problem. In other countries where gambling doesn't tend to occur or have strict r rules that they, you know people can't gamble till they're 18, you typically find gamblers will say they started gambling when they were 14, 15, when they started to look adult and maybe could get into to gambling premises. Uh, but as I say, it is different in different countries all over the world. And of course, many different, different countries use the term adolescence differently. You know, in this country, to be regarded as an adolescent, it's anything under the eight, age of 18 years. If you go to Canada or North America, it's typically seen as anybody under 21. In Australia, for instance, I've seen ad supposed adolescent gambling studies going right up to 23, which, you know, personally, I think that is adult. But, if, you know, but I, I don't think there's any hard and fast hmm. answer of when exactly somebody starts. But, of course, it's related to the availability of gambling within those environments as well. And as I say, in the UK, we, you know, we, we've got a situation where some forms of slot machines are legally uh, available for children to play on. So it's not surprising that we in the UK have one of the biggest and highest adolescent gambling rates in the world because we allow commercial gambling and give access to, to our adolescents. The other thing, of course, is that people use the words problem gambling and addiction, and they're not the same thing at all. Uh, you know, for me, I, I would say that all addicts, all gambling addicts are problem gamblers, but not all problem gamblers are addicts. And most of the research that's been done around the world tends to use problem gambling scales rather than ones that co concentrate on addiction. And I suppose the good news is that genuine addictions are actually very, very uh, minor. But, of course, pro gambling, you know, problems with gambling could c occur from anything, from having relationship problems because of your gambling, financial problems because of your gambling, just spending too much of a right. disposable income without necessarily being an addiction. Can you then kind of lay out that distinction for us in your view? What, what is the line that is drawn between someone who is a problem gambler and, and that could be something that is very detrimentally affecting their lives and, and when it veers into actual gambling addiction, which you're saying is actually a very small minority of, uh, of uh, problem gamblers? Absolutely. Well, I've got, I've got the, I, I use six criteria and anybody, I don't care what the behavior is, whether it's gambling, video game playing, online use, if anyone fulfills my six criteria of addiction, I would operationally define those as an addiction. And basically, 
you know, basically, gam to be a genuine addiction, you'd have to endorse all of these, that gambling is the single most important thing in your life and you do it to neglect of everything else. You use the gambling as a way of modifying your mood. You build up the amount of gambling you do over time, what we would call tolerance. You get withdrawal symptoms if you're unable to gamble. It conflicts with everything else in your life, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your schoolwork or work, depending on what age you are. And if you have managed to give up gambling for a little while, is that when you do it again, you go straight back into the addictive cycles you were in before, and you know people would experience what I would call a subjective loss of control. Mm. And there are, you know, the good news is very few people would fulfil every single one of those criteria. However, and you know, we do know that in adolescent gambling, there, are, there is a higher proportion of adolescent gambling uh, in terms of prevalence in the population there is amongst adults, because you know, in the UK, for instance, our adult problem gambling rate is about half a percent of all adults. Whereas amongst children, it's probably as, you know, between 1% and 2%, which is at least double, tri triple or quadruple, depending on which particular survey that you want to look at. But as I say, as you said, problem gambling can still detrimentally affect people's lives, even if they haven't got an addiction. Of course, a lot of people just going beyond their disposable income, and that's very easy to do as right. adolescents that can be very problematic and of course when you know when adolescents get out of control with their gambling and they go beyond their disposable income they then start to resort to you know what we'd call highly questionable behaviors things like taking money from their mother or father's wallets or purses through to actual criminal behavior stealing things selling them in order to to engage in their gambling fix you know as i say thankfully those real extreme cases are few and far between but that doesn't take away the fact that of course adolescent gambling appears to be on the rise right across the world and that's because of course gambling is becoming more deregulated more liberalized and actually becoming more socially acceptable and of course whether we you know whether we look at other consumptive behaviors like alcohol drinking and cigarette smoking gambling is one of those behaviors that where you increase access and access but sorry increase opportunity and access to those activities not only do you increase the number of regular gamblers but unfortunately you increase the number of problem gamblers as well in terms of uh the view on addictions are all addictions created equal because what you're describing with gambling does seem to be a little bit different from alcohol addiction or, or uh, drug addiction or some other forms of addictions and are there sort of uh, i suppose overlaps if you tend to be an alcoholic are you more prone to be a gambling addict right well there's, there's a number of different questions in there of course if we're going to use the word addiction we have to make sure it's that you apply equally across every single behavior. And that's why I have six criteria, and I, I compare that with all different types of behaviors. But, of course, all addictions are idiosyncratic. You know, a cocaine addict is not going to be the same as a heroin right. addict, is not going to be the same as a video game addict, is not necessarily going to be the same as a gambling addict. Um, uh, sorry, I forgot what the second part of your question there, there was. Is, um, there, is there sort of this overlap where if someone right, has yeah, an addictive... I mean, the thing is, actually, yes, I actually published an article over the weekend talking about addictive personality, saying that the, you know, that, that the addictive personality is a complete myth. The reason why addictive personality persists, of course, is that when people give up one addiction, they're left with a big hole and a void in their life, and what they often do is fill it with another type of addiction that gives them all those same kinds of feelings and mood-modificating effects. So, you know, it's not surprising when I go into a room of Gamblers Anonymous, what do I find? A group of chain-smoking, coffee-drinking individuals. You know, in effect, they've, you know, they've taken one thing out of their life and they're replacing it with something that could be, mm. in some circ circumstances, equally as bad. But yes, there is a crossover. You know, we look at the lifestyle, of, particularly of adolescents, for instance, 
instance, we know that if you are, uh, you know, if you are gambling as an adolescent, you're more likely to be drinking alcohol, you're more likely to be engaged in illicit drug taking, you're more likely to involve in risky sex. What we're talking about here is a lifestyle cluster of behaviours that do not occur in a vacuum. These tend to happen to uh, tend to happen to, uh, together. So that's not so. It's not unusual, for instance. I've come across alcoholic pathological gamblers. The thing about alcohol, alcohol, you know, people that's both alcoholic and a pathological gambler, you do have the capacity to do both of those activities at the same time. You know, we see it all the time in Las Vegas, you know, casinos, right. people drinking alcohol while they're playing a slot machine, for instance. So it's, it's perfectly feasible to get those co-occurring addictions. I think what's more difficult is to have two co-occurring behavioral addictions. So, for instance, I've been told, you know, I've seen some research that said there are workaholic pathological gamblers. Well, unless you actually work in the gambling industry, I can't believe you can be both addicted to work and addicted to gambling at the same time. But we do know that if you have a propensity towards one addiction, that, you know, that, you know, if you give that addiction up or, you, you know, um, you, you know there, there is an overlap there in terms of what people seek from what they want from their, their, you know, from their, their particular behaviours. But, of course, all behaviour is what we call biopsychosocial. You know, even if we can show two people are identical in terms of their problem gambling uh, habits day, day in, day out, one of those people might be more genetically or biologically predisposed towards addiction. For another person, it may be more to do with the social environment they, they live in. For a third person, it might be to do with their personality characteristics, their attitudes, their expectations. And that is the thing about addiction. Addiction is a biopsychosocial uh, uh, condition, and it's very, very complex. And how people, mm. if you like, the pathways into uh, problem gambling are different for different individuals. If, if there is a consensus among experts like yourself that uh, the younger one starts and, and that is certainly problematic, you, you cited about uh, teenagers saying that they started at 14 even if the legal age was 18. Uh, hypothetically, if a government was able to strictly enforce a, a gambling law, let's say 21, and, and they were very effective in making sure that people did not start gambling until that age of 21, would that go a long ways towards reducing the numbers of problem gamblers and uh, gambling addicts? Well, I believe yes. I've written a number of papers, you know, here in the UK because we do have this, you know, what I think is a bizarre situation that there are, you know, there are some forms of gambling which can, you know, are commercially available and children can gamble on those particular products. I've advocated that all gambling should, you know, be 18 and over. But in this country, as I say, we have some forms of gambling. You can be 16, some forms you can be 18. In the case of um, uh, slot machines, we have, you know, some cases where you can be, you don't have to actually be any legal age whatsoever. So I personally believe that 18 should be a minimum across all countries. And of course, in Canada, in, in America, they have an age limit of 21. Having said that, that does not mean that you would eliminate problem gambling by doing that. But I do think we'd see uh, a marked effect. Yeah. You know, but we, you know, we, we know for a start there are risk factors, for instance, you know, having a big win early in your playing career. You know, the worst thing that can ever happen to somebody when they first start gambling is to win. Now, whether that's whether you're 14, whether you're 18, or whether you're 36, having a big win early in your playing career is, is, is a, a problematic factor because people always think, you know, that, that I can go back and I can win th this huge amount of money, you know. So... You know, it, it isn't just about the, the age when people first start, but I do think it's a very important first step. Has the UK government uh, or are there people who are trying to push uh, the government in the UK towards what you're advocating, maybe closing some of those loopholes with slot machines in, in arcades and whatnot? Oh, there, there, has, there has been great efforts. I mean, I've been working in this area for 30 years, and the good news is, 
is that problem gambling in the UK has dropped quite dramatically over the last 20 years. You know, back in the early 2000s, for instance, we had a problem gambling prevalence rate of about 5%. By the mid-2000s, that had gone down to 3%. Now it's just under 2%. You know, and there have been laws and legislation that have come in that have helped that. So one of the biggest changes that we've seen is that slot machines that you used to find in what we call single-site premises, so things like chip shops and cafes and mm. movie foyers, these have actually been now taken out so that there's no temptation for children to play those particular machines. But what, you know, but we still have this loophole that in seaside arcades and in family leisure centres, children can play on low-stake slot machines. And the government seems to feel that because they're fairly low-stake, so for instance, children here might you know, play with two pence or five pence or ten pence a go, as opposed to you know, three goes for one pound that you find in the more adult premises, is that addiction it, you know, has nothing to do with the amount that you put in. We know that, that, that gambling operates on what we call operant conditioning schedules, that, you know, that, that the rewards, when they're given unpredictably, and infrequently is that it persists in behavior and that can happen with low stake slot machines as they can do with higher stake slot machines so yeah the government is starting to move in a direction that i wanted them to move but i still think they could go a lot further and as i say one of the things that i personally would want to implement is no gambling for anyone under the age of 18. all right very good we're gonna have to leave it there professor griffiths as always thank you very much for joining us appreciate it absolute pleasure thank you Professor Mark Griffiths from uh, Nottingham Trent University. Uh, Professor Huang waiting very patiently. I know you have a lot to say in regards to what we just heard, but some interesting points raised by the professor, right? Oh, absolutely. It seems like you know, UK has made a great strides in improving uh, the addiction problem. You know. When we talk about some of the solutions we can have here in Korea, we can't necessarily say uh, just kind of cookie cutter uh, everything that the UK has done in terms of being able to reduce their numbers of youth gambling. It's a different culture. It's got different uh, regulatory environment, uh, different, I suppose, uh, leisure system in place there. But uh, one of the things that the government did institute and was controversial because companies like Blizzard and other major gaming companies did not like this law, but the so-called Cinderella or shutdown law where right. they basically uh, barred youths from uh, playing games uh, after a certain time in the night. Uh, perhaps uh, game addiction was the concern, but that could have also filtered into gambling. Uh, do you think that's an effective law? Well, first of all, we're switching the topic a little bit. We're going from gambling addiction to sure. gaming addiction. So f uh, for gaming addiction, I, I have to admit the science is little, still a bit tenuous. There isn't a, a lot of studies out there, but still there is a you know, sufficient voice within the Korean government to, to be concerned about that. That's why back in 2011, as you mentioned, this shutdown law was in fact basically anyone under 16 would be kicked out of any of the internet gaming sites between midnight and 6 in the morning. And, you know, Korean government is not trying to sort of, you know, ease this regulation now, you know, as a part of, you know, revitalizing the economy as well. And I think that shows, sort of shows at least not the gambling part, but when it comes to internet gaming, Korean government has sort of a split personality about this. There's, you know, people in, on the health authority who sort of views gaming as, you know, sort of like gambling, it produces addiction, so forth. There's, you know, sort of economy types who say, hey, we have great gaming co companies, it's a great export business. We're world-class gamers. That's right. Right, and, you yeah. know, this government is also big on deregulation right now. So, you know, we have this uh, conflict of policies. One day we might say, hey, we want to crack down on gaming addiction. On the other hand, hey, we need to put in a lot more money into the gaming industry. So I think for a while we are going to see a little bit split-minded yeah. uh, policies coming out of Korean government in this era. Now, uh, when uh, we talked to Professor Griffiths, I, I suppose there was an agreement that if we could 
regulate and enforce the laws of the land as it stands. No one under 18, no one under 21, depending on the country, and that was actually effectively enforced. It would go a long ways to, I suppose, solving some of the societal ills because of these studies that are showing that the earlier you start, the bigger the problem is. Is that feasible in a country like Korea? Do, are there any laws and regulations that could be passed? To make well, that on the, to begin with, in Korea, unlike you know UK, we weren't, we didn't have you know a lot of machines that you know scattered all over the place where teenagers can just go yeah. and play slot machines. And you know, it's a recent problem. And a lot of times, the problem is that you know these internet gambling sites or have servers located in China or somewhere in uh, Southeast Asia, and it's really hard for the Korean police to like, crack down. You know, you you sort of go track down the uh, the internet address and it turns out you know server is located somewhere in in philippines how do you go and you know search and you know arrest people and so forth and i think that has become a big a big issue in korea where you know the the the, the organizers have making so much money that they they can afford to set these shops up in china and other, mm. other places and the korean police are, are not just able to keep up in the enforcement level the technology is sort of kind of run away right. with this thing then so uh, overall they're not a very optimistic view on as far as the, the government being able to clamp down this stuff. Well, as for the overseas servers, it's hard to clamp down. So, you know, we have to think about, you know, cutting off the Internet access, uh, you know, paying more attention to the teenagers and themselves. But, you know, actually going to the servers yeah. takes a lot more work. All right. Well, it's a difficult topic, but Professor Huang, as always, we appreciate your insights on all of these issues. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you very much.